You're listening to audio from Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, located in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. We hope this message is helpful to you in your journey with God. For the live stream archive of our worship services, you can visit youtube.com slash cornerstonelebanonpa. Christian community is best lived out in face-to-face relationships with one another. We encourage you to physically participate in a local church setting within your area. Learn more about our faith community by visiting cornerstonelebanon.com. So we're at the end of our liturgical year, and that's just a fancy word to say that um, the church in general over thousands of years has had kind of a rhythm, the bigger C church, not Cornerstone, of focusing on the coming of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, and then in between those two things, it's known as what is called ordinary time. Ordinary time. And we're coming to the end of ordinary time because we're going to be heading into the Advent Christmas season. And so over the next couple of weeks, um, we are going to be talking about very ordinary things that affect most of us, if not all of us. I was going to do one week politics, another week technology, but I decided to do two weeks of politics, um, for better or for worse, we'll see. Uh, Jim Gosher is going to be bringing the word on money, and then uh, Tim Deering will be here in a few weeks also to talk about what it means to bless our city and to be um, a people that are both involved within the city, seeking its, its welfare, but that are living in a different way than the world around us. So that's kind, of, that's kind of where we're going. And to say today's about politics is actually a little bit of a misnomer because I'm trying to pray, think, hear through the things that might be underneath some of our political divisions, especially those that are within the church. And, and not necessarily, I'm not going to tell you today who you should vote for or any of that stuff. It's more so what is the heart, what are the motivations, what are some of the things that are maybe underlying um, some of the divisions we have towards other people, even our brothers and sisters that we need to be wise about, that we need to address. And I'll be talking about politics a little bit, but I'm trying to get the underlying thing. I'm trying to hear, uh, I believe God is trying to speak to us, something that's not just on the surface of politics, but that's underneath there. As a reminder, I am not a political scientist. Um, My degrees are not in political nature. Likely, yeah, we'll just keep it like that. I'm a pastor that is talking about the gospel and the kingdom of God and sometimes how the kingdom of God over, overlaps with some of the things in our world are, are fuzzy at best or we have a lot of different opinions on uh, what that should look like. I am not here as a political ana- uh, analyst or as a political scientist. And I want to reiterate again, that while there's going to be political flavor in all this, there's this underlying truth for us to hear today that applies to all of our relationships. It applies to those relationships that we're closest to, such as with our kids, um, our friends, uh, our spouses. It applies to how we lead in different places, how we are led in different places. And it affects how we view even other churches or just people in general that are different than us. And uh, pastorally, I want to ask you something odd for this morning. I want you to be selfish this morning. I want to, has has anybody ever asked you to be selfish before in your life? I mean, they have. You just didn't know they were asking you to do that. And what I mean by being selfish, it's not to forget 
um, how your life affects other people. Um, it's not about, you know, being a narcissist and just uh, crowding out all the other voices. What I'm saying here is that um, as we talk about politics, as we talk about some underlying struggles we have with people that are different than us, we can often hear messages from the word or from a Sunday morning and we automatically think about the people around us and how they need to do this thing rather than how I need to receive the word and be struck by the word and yield to the word. Even as I'm going through this in my notes and preparing, I keep thinking about these other people <laughs> that I was like, oh, that must be what's happening with such and such. And be like, wait a minute, that's, I'm, asking, I'm asking us to think about ourselves in this and how we need to be changed and transformed. And so there is, at, at, the, at the flip of a switch, there is this thing where we can hear something and not actually try to hear it for ourselves because it might be a painful place, it might be an uncomfortable place, and yet that's what I'm asking us to do today is be a little bit selfish as you listen to the words. How does this apply to how I love other people? How does this apply to how I feel when I have a conviction about something and that conviction is being um, attacked or even just questioned? And why do I feel that way? Even if it was with the proper tone, even if it was with somebody I love, what is this beast, this thing, this, I don't know, this angst inside of some of us, most of us, many of us, that like just wants to defend ourselves, even though we might be wrong in what we're thinking, even though we might be wrong in what we're doing. So that's where we're heading today, and we're heading to the communion table because I don't have like a distinct application that every single person walking out of here should think about this week. Because there's so many different variants of what goes on as we treat people uh, with love and respect or with hatred and disrespect that you really need to listen for the Holy Spirit and the Word of God today. So be selfish in that manner. Don't be thinking about others. Think about yourself and how the Word is coming to you today. In 2015, there was this experiment that you might have heard of. It was a uh, neurological science experiment, and they put a whole bunch of people um, under an imaging machine to check out their brains. It was this neuroscience experiment. They had 130 participants, and what they did is that they first they would take uh, people in here, they would see their, they would scan their brains, and then they would show them a picture, a video of somebody's hand being stabbed with a syringe. And I was gonna get Toby to come in here and stab me with a syringe and see how you people acted to know how you felt about me. But they're at student transition, so I couldn't do that. Um, no, and so what they did, they, and they measured it as kind of like a baseline. There was no other um, symbols. Obviously, there was skin color that was involved there, but they tried to make it as bland as possible and to see what their brain, how their brain reacted, specifically in the idea of pain and of empathy. So after they did that, they did another part of the experiment, and what they did is that now they did the same hands or random hams, except this time they uh, put one-word labels on the videos of the hands, and they chose uh, religious labels, even non-religious labels, atheist, Christian, Jew, Muslim, Buddhist. And then they measured uh, the brain activity that happened during that time. And so what they found was this trend. 
And they, they, some psychologists call it the in-group bias that is, is like working within us that has some benefit is trying to figure out um, what is safe for us to enter into. But what they found out is that when a person who identifies as that label saw somebody get stabbed, their brain pain slash empathy level jumped up, which makes sense. Like you kind of identify with that person. But the negative part of that is that if the person was not in your in-group and you saw that person got hurt, there, wasn't, there was more of a flatline response. There wasn't a, oh, there was a flatline response, which is signifying that when we see people that are being harmed or against that aren't in our group, whatever that group is, that there's something inside a lot of us in the way we view the world that can't empathize with those people. That we can empathize with people that are like us, but then those, even though they're human beings, we don't empathize with them as much. So the way we view other people in something as simple as a label of what religion you are affects literally kind of how we feel and how we think. And so there is this trend towards empathizing with your in-group, but that also meant not caring about someone as much that wasn't on your team. Now, I wonder if in 2020, 2021, 2022, if we would do this experiment, and let's just put different political labels on here, would we empathize with the pain of somebody that wasn't part of our party that we typically identify with, including if you're agnostic in your politicalness, would you identify with them as much? Would you identify with some of the pain? Would you empathize with them as much? And so it's this thing where we as Christians, especially we as those that are following Jesus, are trying to view the world as it is, that we are all broken human beings in need of divine transformative grace at all times in our life. But we have some things that work against us in our culture and even, I would say, in our sin nature that we continue to wrestle against as we're being recreated in Christ's image. If you are here next week, I want to greatly encourage you to come to Pam's equipping class on the gift of validation, because part of the thing that she's going to be talking about is that if Marx and I don't have, this is just an example, Marx and I don't have the same uh, political affiliation with one another, but we get in a room together and we're talking about that thing, how can I both, even if I disagree with Marcus, how can I validate him how can I hear where he's coming from without necessarily saying, I agree with what you're doing, with what you're saying, the way you're thinking, but yet there's some kind of relational component there that treats him not as somebody on the other team, not as an enemy, but as somebody that is a human being in process, just like all of us are. So if you can make it next week, please try to come to the equipping class. That'll be with Pam, probably in the upstairs, in the upstairs room. So again, if we were to put our brains in the scanner thinking about these political contexts, what would it be like? There are these religious rhetorical sound bites that go in that have to do with uh, the Christian vision of the world and they get co-opted by the political parties. These are some sound bites that uh, maybe you've heard at different places that come from both the left and the right. I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From 
certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. In some recent surveys, it was shown that parents would rather have their child marry someone that was more in line with their political beliefs than their religious beliefs. With their political beliefs more than their religious beliefs. Um, Their... Do I say this? Do I say this? Uh, no, it's me, trying to, it's me trying to be clever. It's not. It's something that hit me and I was just like, ah, but I'm trying to keep the focus on me too. When I say that, I mean like, where do I need to change? So I'm going to stop for a second. Conviction in itself isn't wrong. Disagreement with another person isn't wrong. Um, believing in truth with a capital T isn't wrong. But what is wrong um, is when those things become a sense of tribalism. This idea, what is tribalism? Tribalism, uh, and the way I've kind of compiled it as I was researching this a little bit and some of the other things that I see in the scripture, tribalism is this idea, this idolatrous loyalty to a group. And loyalty to a group isn't a bad thing. But idolatrous loyalty to a group, again, regardless if it's politics, what happens when our idolatry actually plays into our churches? An idolatrous loyalty to a group causing harm to outsiders and co-signing the evil of insiders. So tribalism is a loyalty to a group, an idolatrous loyalty to a group, causing harm to outsiders and co-signing the evil of insiders, who you identify with, you know, the in-group. Tribalism will eventually destroy the tribe it has infected. Why? Because it nurtures the vice of playing God and not submitting and yielding and seeking God. And I don't believe that quote-unquote tribes or groups of people are actually a bad thing in and of itself. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be down at Parker Ford talking about one church and the idea of how we can uh, see each other more and more as um, one church in the area or one church in the city. But notice that we have differences and we have diversity. And so the way I kind of link that in the scriptures is the fact of like there were these 12 tribes of Jacob that they were all supposed to be part of one nation, but they also had their distinctiveness. And the way that God is trying to reconcile all things under Christ isn't just to make everything vanilla. It's actually to have diversity of thought, diversity of some belief, diversity of how are we going to best love the world around, how are we going to uh, be transformed ourselves into the likeness of Christ. And we need those things to come together rather than being siloed and separated into other places. So tribes in and of themselves aren't bad, but tribalism is. And we see this all over the New Testament with the Jew and the Gentile debate. That you're not really a Christian if you don't do this. You're definitely not a Christian if you do this. And this back and forth between both Jews and Gentiles. We tend to think mostly of the Jews, but there was Gentile believers that were also against the Jewish expression of their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. They were like, you guys are stupid. Why are you still hanging on to that stuff? And so we have things as Christians seeking after Jesus that we must overcome. Tribalism is one of these. Even if we're not aware, we have to at least have some kind of philosophical or mindfulness that is like, I have biases, even if I don't know what those biases are. Because we're often blind to the things that we're blind to. And it's difficult for that. 
It's always easier to see someone else's faults and shortcomings, inconsistencies, and their quote-unquote stupidity. And perhaps in the past uh, or present, and maybe literally or in the tone of someone's voice, you've heard stuff like, don't be stupid and vote for Trump. Or you're not stupid, are you? Why would you vote for Biden? Or whatever the next politicalness of Oz and Fetterman, whatever it is. And so the challenge today, I reiterate again, is not to think about what should we do with those stupid people, but how do I, as a person seeking after Jesus, how do I guard against being stupid? <laughs> and it's the part of the psalmist's prayer that we hear like, God, teach me, teach us to number our days with wisdom and with grace. How can we walk in wisdom and in grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a more well-known Christian minister that wrestled with the tension of what to do in a political climate. Um, he was there during World War II. How do I engage in this? Ultimately, he was executed for a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler, of which he wrestled with. Where does this go? Where does evil get to the point that something needs to happen in the midst of the Christian church to speak out against it? Where is it that we're waiting and trying to instill love and compassion on people while still holding out our convictions? And where is there just so much death happening that we need to step in and forcefully do something? This was a wrestle within Bonhoeffer. In his prison letters, he has some words for us that I'd like us to hear today. And again, not applying it to those around us. Pretend he's talking to us, to our own hearts. Because often in a sense of self-rightness, we can unintentionally end up contributing to the problems in our society that we think we're battling against with our words and with our actions. And he says, he says this, he says, stupidity is a more dangerous enemy of the good than hatred because reason falls on deaf ears. Facts that contradict one's prejudgment simply need not be believed. In such moments, the stupid person can even become critical and when facts are irrefutable, they are just pushed aside as inconsequential, as incidental. In all this, the stupid person, in contrast to the hateful one, is utterly self-satisfied and being easily irritated becomes dangerous by going on the attack, or I would also say becomes dangerous when we uh, uh, fight or flight. That by actually not staying in the situation where it's safe to stay in, when we leave the situation rather than try to work through it, that can also be a dangerous place. So how in part can we mark our days with wisdom and grace? How do we defend against our own stupidity? Not our spouses, not our friend who's voting for the other uh, guy or lady this political season. This uh, PhD psychologist that does work with both clinical and organizational systems um, had, a, had an article that caught my attention in, I think it was Forbes a couple weeks ago. It was eight ways smart people act stupid. Eight ways smart people act stupid. And he said overconfidence is a way. Pushing people too hard. The need to always be right. A lack of emotional intelligence. And what that means is um, only the result matters. Only the achievement matters. Not who I run over in the midst to get that result not the people that are involved. As long as the goal is met, it doesn't matter what the pathway is, which we've talked against before. Another way a smart person acts stupid is that they give up when they fail. They don't develop endurance 
like longevity, um, resilience, as I think Dennis put it a couple, a year or two ago. They multitask, which I think is interesting, and they can't accept feedback. Those are some of the ways that him, just looking at that, thought about how do smart people act stupid. I would like to focus for a minute on a proverb that tries to answer this question. And remember, when we look at Proverbs, Proverbs aren't always promises, they're more principles. It's not like you do this and then all of a sudden, magically, unicorns come out and everything's good and your life goes easy. Proverbs are not promises necessarily, they're principles. And this proverb from Proverbs uh, 12, it says, you know, to learn you must love discipline, it is stupid to hate correction. If you love learning, you love the discipline that goes with it. How short-sighted to refuse correction. And then the version we have on our screen, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but the one who hates reproof is stupid. So whoever loves discipline, meaning uh, training, whoever loves being warned, which we'll get into, does anybody really like being warned? Whoever loves correction, those are the ones that actually love knowledge, love wisdom, love understanding, want to be able to recognize reality as it is, want to be able to discern the situation in front of them. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But the one who hates reproof, reproof meaning any kind of argument against what you're thinking, feeling, believing, or doing, any kind of disapproval, of what you've just said or done or shared. But the one who hates reproof is stupid. And the word stupid there actually means to be something less than human. It means to be animal-like. It means to be brutish. It means to be like cattle. Maybe we would say unreasonable, senseless. The uh, um, Latin of stupid means to be deaf, means to be numb means to be stunned when something comes against us. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. And I love the fact that it says whoever, it doesn't say, hey, Justin, once you turn 40, you have everything figured out. And I think, especially as I get older, there's this thing that I can feel growing inside of me, where it's like, hey, I've been through some things in my life. I I have some things to contribute. I've been corrected, I've been grown. Uh, yeah, sure, I'm still, still in process, but I'm pretty much like I'm done. I'm done growing. There's nothing I really need to change on. I, I can feel that over the past five years. And I, I liken it to just getting older, something happening with me biologically. I don't know if that's true. I was talking, I was uh, with part of my ministry, I do podcasts for Netzer, and we were talking with a Christian leader down um, in the Philly area, his name's Phil Carnuccio, and he was just saying in his mid to late 50s now, like he's looking around at some of his friends, some of his congregants, and he's like, man, I do not want to become that angry old man that I see everywhere. And ladies, you're not off the hook. Don't become an angry old lady either. But I don't want to become that, and I feel this pull towards it. That the things out of my, what is even coming out of my, why am I so critical with everything that's coming out of my mouth? Why do I react Anytime there's any kind of reproof that comes my way. And I think there is something good about growing in our convictions 
as we're getting older. I do think there's something good with that where, you know, as we're open to things, we're not open to everything, that we've learned some things. However, if our character isn't growing in tandem with our conviction, we're going to be in trouble. So not only do we want to grow in conviction, we want our character to grow. So take this out of, um, you know, talks with your friends or family or your brothers and sisters here at Cornerstone about politics. Uh, Take it to, I'm going to take it to a silly level that is also ridiculously painful for some reason. Um, And that's just like, how do you receive correction in your own home? Either with uh, your family, and even if you're single, when you're, say, around people for the holidays or you're hanging out with people and you're starting to talk about things, um, how how do you feel at certain times when you maybe share something and somebody else says something different? In our home, we've been having this fun time talking about... um, how because we are blind to see certain things in our house, and this is just roommate stuff. But the thing is, is that we all are actually roommates of earth, and we need to learn to get along with one another. But that's put into the microcosm of a home, as an example. It doesn't apply to everybody, but I think everybody can feel it. And we were like, oh, so what we're going to do for a week, we're not going to do this because our family would get torn apart. What we're going to do for a week is just quietly see where Justin or Naomi or Eden and Lana has left things out out of place. And we're just going to take a picture of it on our phone, not say anything about it. And then, you know, for Saturday night Sabbath or whatever, we're going to get together and be like, hey, do you realize what you're doing? <laughs> the latest one was like, Naomi was like, hey, oh, there's something you left out for a couple days now and I haven't cleaned up. And it was my uh, beard trimmings in a bowl on the, on the sink. And like, literally, I did not see it. Like, I knew I did it, and I had it there. And like, I was in the bathroom for four days. I'm like, what? I, I don't, and then I went up after she said something, and it was like, oh yeah, I shouldn't have left that out. Now, that might seem like a silly example, but then when Naomi, and thinking about me, corrects me, or reproves me, or just is like, hey, this is out of place. I don't mean to project this on anybody else, but I'm like, what are you talking about? What about everything that you do that's out of place? What about all your photography stuff that has taken over the living room? What about this, that, or whatever else? And I think that we can all, at least some point in our life, connect with that. And that's like the simplest thing in the world. And yet, literally, I feel this angst. You're like, why, why am I so... Uh, being so filled, like I just want to defend myself rather than simply be like, yeah, you're right about that point without having to go into the other million points that I'm, of course, right about. What is that thing that wants to self-justify myself? So reminder, be selfish as we're thinking about this. We are talking about politics, but not really. And also, just as another reminder, as we're thinking about ourselves selfishly and how this cuts our heart about, you know, you know, receiving reproof and not being stupid, is also this other thing, is that our kids have recently become backstreet drivers, or backseat drivers, where the twins, if I don't turn the, if I do not turn the um, turn signal on, even if there's no need for the turn signal, because there's nobody around but I'm turning, they'll be like very passively, like, Dad, are you going straight here? And like, I know, I know that there's nobody around that I don't need it, but like, they're not, you're not doing it right. I say all that as to 
this is not an exhortation for you to nitpick your friends, your family, your spouses, or anything like that. We're not talking about nagging each other. Again, there's a community element to this. We're talking about how do I receive correction? How do I receive reproof? How do I try to love knowledge and seek after recognition, even when it kind of grates against me and I need to like wrestle with it because oh, that thing that they said, that is, that is true, but that doesn't fit in with this other thing and I don't know what to do about it. How do I receive reproof? Let's go uh, to, the, to the word, 1 Kings 22. I want to do a short story here that has to do about a king who did not want to change the course, who did not want to receive correction. So what we have here, 1 Kings 22, it's, in, it's, it's right around there in your Bible, if you want to find that. 1 Kings 22. This is about a king from the north of Israel, a king from the south of Israel, partnering together the king um, of the north, uh, Ahab, which is, it's, he's known in here as the king of Israel. He's not actually called Ahab in here. Um, he wants to go and he wants to take back some land that they lost in a battle years ago. And so what he does is that he says to the king of the south, he's like, hey, king of the south, will you support me? The king of the south says, yes, my horses are your horses. You know, my military power is your military power. Let's see. But first, Jehoshaphat, uh, Jehoshaphat says, let's inquire of the Lord. This is in verses uh, 1 through 12. I'm just summarizing this, and then we'll read. And so what ends up happening is that this king from the north sends out Shall we go to battle with Ramath Gilead or shall I refrain? Shall I do this or shall I not? And then what ends up happening is that all of the prophets, 400 prophets, say go up for the Lord will give it, give it into the hands of the king. Go up, do this. 400 people are siding with the king of the north saying, yes, you should do this. Jehoshaphat is like, ah, can we get is there another prophet of the Lord we could ask? The king says, uh, yeah, he is, but I don't like asking him things because he only speaks evil against me. He only says things that I don't want him to say. So I kind of, he's there, but do we have to ask him? And Jehoshaphat's like, yeah, we should probably ask him. And so they go out, get the messenger, come back. Um, and even some of the other prophets are making these prophetic symbols with horns being like, you're going to take down and we're going to conquer the land. And then in verse 13, let's pick up in the story in verse 13. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah, this is the prophet that's like the solo prophet. Where are we at here? Sorry. I have, is this right? Oh, king versus prophet. That's great. Yeah. Um, behold, the word of the Lord came to the prophet. So the messenger is saying to this lone prophet, hey, uh, the word of the Lord came and it's one that is favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. We want to know what you have to say, but say what we want you to say. But Micaiah said, as Yahweh lives, what Yahweh says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go and take this land in battle or shall we refrain? And it's interesting because you can't read the tone of the text. He says, and he, the prophet Micaiah said, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hands of the king. Verse 16, but the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear to me that you speak nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So however the prophet said that, 
He was rolling his eyes. He had some kind of uh, something, sarcasticness in his voice. Like, this is what I know you want me to say, so I will say that. But he's giving off a tone that is like, hey, this isn't what I think. And then the king is upset because he's asking for him to say what the others are saying. But then when he doesn't say what the others are saying, he still yells at him. Power play, coercion. And Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the ancient Near Eastern kings were known as shepherds too. They were supposed to shepherd their people. They were supposed to care for their people. I saw uh, sheep, uh, a flock without any shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of his home return and be in peace. So they scattered, they went back to their places. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you, so the king of the north said to the king of the south, did I tell you that he would not prophesy good, but evil? Didn't I tell you this? And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on the right hand and on the left. So there's this divine council meeting um, on the right and on the left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, the king of the north, that he may go up and fall as he takes this land? And for some backstories to why the Lord might, want it, might have wanted him to fall, you need to read previously, which I encourage you to do, but we're not going to get there. And one of the divine council members said one thing, another said another thing. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets, which is really interesting. We're not going to get into that, but this is what's happening. And he said, you are to entice him and he and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, one of the other prophets of the 400 that said, hey, this guy, uh, the king Ahab, he's going to succeed, came near and he punched, he struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the spirit of the Lord go for me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, behold, you shall see on that day when you go up into the inner chamber to hide yourself, meaning the taking over of the land. And the king of Israel said, seize Micaiah, seize the prophet that prophesied evil, prophesied truth against, and and put him away. Take him back to the governor of the city and say, thus says the king, put put this fellow in prison and feed him with meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. Meaning once I show him, that his prophecy isn't true, then we'll show him. We'll be like, then we'll deal with him. And Micaiah the prophet said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you people, which is one of the things like when, prophecy should not be used, especially now to predict stuff, this day and age back there, it was used for that to um, prophesy certain things. Um, It should usually not be used to prophesy future. I don't want to, cut off that arm of the church, the more charismatic arm of the church. But there's a lot more going on here. And so what ended up happening then is that the king heard the word and then he decided like he's probably telling the truth so I'm just going to somehow manipulate or usurp the word. And what ended up happening is that he goes into battle, the king of the north goes into battle, don't dress me in any of the king stuff. I'm going to get on my chariot, I'm going to get on my horse and we're just going to have other people kind of pretend to be me And then what ends up happening is that we'll take them over. I'm not going to get killed. We'll get the land back. 
And then randomly, a stray arrow strikes the king in the head, in the face, in the body, and kills him. So even though the king tried to get around the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord still came to pass. Here's the thing. Oftentimes, we can feel like we're the lone prophet that is trying to speak truth. And a lot of times, I think we're the king that won't listen to any kind of reproof. That we are the king that just wants to surround ourselves with 400 people that are going to say what I want to hear rather than the one that is putting their life on the line to actually say, this is what the Lord says. There was a spiritual prediction in 2016 from Jeremiah Johnson that came true of the American election. In 2020, he also made a prediction that came out wrong. And when he was talking about the process of thinking about how him, as part of the charismatic arm of the church, how he works, um, at first he was like, either it was a lying spirit, so like in this story, that told all these prophets that this guy was going to win and they didn't, or there was some kind of corruption that was happening. There's no third option. Either there's a lying spirit or there's corruption. One thing's for sure, I wasn't wrong. A year later, he said he cringes when he thinks back to that message and how he posited himself there. He says, I was as entrenched as anyone. And again, as I'm using this, there's obviously, we're talking about the Republican Party here. This is, uh, this is not about Republican or Democrats. This is about all of us. Okay, so please do not come to me afterwards and be like, you didn't talk about Democrats enough. I was entrenched as anyone was. I tell people like I feel like I've been rescued, however. I feel the kindness of God. I feel his discipline and I've cried so many tears just thanking the Lord for the wake-up call of how I was entangled by the political realm. Jeremiah Johnson then said he heard another word from the Lord as he opened himself up that said, you're wrong and I'm going to use this to humble you. And Jeremiah actually shut down his ministry and reworked it to kind of focus on other things besides what he was doing there. He said he felt a sense of freedom and lightness in leaving it all behind. He describes the experience as God taking him out of a room of traps where spiritual matters mixed with political ones. There's enough of Jesus in there to keep you in there, but there's not enough of Jesus in there to keep you focused on what really matters. Bonhoeffer said in his prison letters, he said that the fact that the stupid person is often stubborn must not blind us to the fact that he is not independent. Saying like, if you think about the story we just heard, like... Um, uh, the king was being stupid and yet it, it was like almost reasonable. If 400 people came around and were like agreeing with you, that's like, like honestly, if 400 people came and agreed with you, would you be like, eh, I should check with another one? But it says, the fact that the stupid person is often stubborn, meaning uh, blind to the fact that he is not working independent. Bonhoeffer says, in conversation with that person, one virtually feels that one is dealing not at all with him as a person, now think politically, but with slogans and catchwords 
and the like that have taken possession of that person. He is under a spell. He is blinded, misused, and abused in his very being. Having thus become a mindless tool to the political realm, to what he wants to hear, the stupid person will also be capable of any evil and at the same time incapable of seeing that as evil at all. This is where the danger of the diabolical misuse lurks, for it is, it is this that at once and for all could destroy the human being, where we are so overly confident in ourselves that we're not even seeking out a I hate using the word balance, but a balance or another perspective on that to, to take into it, to take into the situation. The Lord's table is a sacred symbol of partaking in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It works to restore us as a person, not some kind of political pundit or political pawn to the evil principalities that would destroy us. The church is called to be a prophetic witness to the world around her. And our prophetic witness at this time in particular is to be a peculiar person, is to be peculiar people. Being a peculiar person is our prophetic witness. You're not like the other Democrats I know. You're not like how I imagined a Republican to be. In the gospel, being Peculiar means that we are possessed by God. We're not possessed by the political catchphrases or the political fear or the, the political um, hatred. We are possessed by God. We are not possessed by the secular or the religious culture or the political systems, even as we work in them. I'm not telling you not to vote. I'm not telling you not to be uh, in our world and doing things. We are, though, in some ways strange to the societal norms of the left and the right. We are unusual in how we seek to embody the truth, and we are curious in our expressions of love towards our enemies. As we yield to the Holy Spirit, God is maturing us into the fullness of Jesus so as not to be tossed back and forth by every thought that comes our way. I don't know what am I, do I lean left, do I lean right, do I lean right, do I lean left, go back and forth forever. That's not even the point. The point is, is that are we, knelt, are we kneeling before the cross? God is speaking to us, hey, I love you. I died for you before you even wanted to admit that you hated me. The table is a place where we receive correction from our loving father. And so as we go to the communion table, I'm going to ask Ron and Mike and Dave to come up as they're going to lead us in worship and the rest of the team. As we head to the communion table, there is this confession that comes out. And if I can take um, some liberty, it doesn't say this in the Bible, but the confession is that, Lord, I have been stupid and you have been faithful in your love towards me. I have been stupid and you have been faithful in your love towards me. The table is a discipline that is a celebration, but that also cuts us to our core. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And I think that's good news for us to hear because you can be like, oh, I must not love knowledge because every time I get reproved or corrected or whatever, I want to fly off the handle. And I think that's just talking about the, the difficult and 
the hardship of that tension, that when we butt up against something that is not how we think or that we're being corrected or just argued against, even in a really good way, um, that we don't like it at first. And just receive that as that's reality. Don't be like, well, I don't like this, so I'm not going to listen to it. Receive it as nobody likes discipline when they first hear it or that when it first comes. It feels painful. It feels like your worldview is getting, is getting destroyed. But then it says later on, however, in the book of Hebrews, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And then the chapter concludes with this in Hebrews. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, unlike the Democratic Party, unlike the Republican Party, unlike the, any other American political party, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful as we approach this table. And so worship God acceptably with reverence, with fear, and with awe. For our God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire in our lives. It's gonna burn away that stuff. Just his presence is correction in our lives because he's holy. And yet he's doing that not to smite us, but because of his love for us and to take away the things that would entangle us and suffocate us and ultimately lead us to death and annihilation. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Others are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king, and our king is Jesus. Answer us when we call. So the team is going to be playing two songs. We're doing communion in a way we haven't done for two years. At the table in the back, there are still the individual cups that are gluten-free. If you want to partake in it that way, there is also a cup of juice and some bread. If you're going up um, at some point over the next two songs, you want to go, you want to rip the bread, you want to remember the broken body of Jesus that loved us, that died for us, even when we were his enemies. You want to dip it into the blood, that's the blood, the loyalty covenant of the new creation and remember his love for you and also how God seeks to love us through his discipline, through the correction. And that comes in a million different ways. And we want to rise and stand and be firm of who God has called us to be, but we don't want to be stupid. We want to be able to receive reproof when it is needed to be received and not completely wall ourselves off and make other people the enemies, but to discern through it and walk in wisdom and grace. Again, the, the cups, the individual cups that are there are um, gluten-free. And you're going to walk to the table and you're just going to take communion. If you want, you can take communion back to your table, but I'm not going to instruct you anymore. We're not going to take it together all at once. This is about you approaching the table, remembering that there's a group of people approaching the table. It's about you being selfish and being like, Lord, I've been stupid and I thank you for your unfailing love. It's an act of trust. Father God, I pray that as we go to the table, uh, I pray that as we open ourselves up um, to the reality of what happened on the cross and the empty tomb, that any places of hardness in our heart would be softened. That there would be just one small step towards trying to listen to someone when something comes my way that feels like a, a conflict or... Um, uh, 
some kind of, not even a fight, but just something that like I don't want to hear or don't want to consider, that I would be able to take one step closer to that person and trying to hear, is this your reproof, Lord? What do I need to hear? So would you, through the sacrament today, help to soften our hearts where they have become hard to this? And God, I also pray that there would be healing as we worship and song and partake of the, of the table because um, uh, some of us, maybe many of us, a lot of us have also opened ourselves up to reproof and other people have abused that and have actually really hurt us in the way they have spoken to us. Even when we were possibly open to receive correction, that it was an improper way to speak or maybe even a lie that we let in. And that for some of us here, we've then said, I'm not going through that again. I'm gonna close myself off and just isolate myself. I know what I think, I'm good. I know what the Lord thinks. I don't need anybody else to tell me that. And there's a real growing as a community and growing as a person to both trust as you um, speak to our hearts and also listen to you as you speak through community and listen to you as you speak through our enemies. So may we be a humble people that don't trust in political might or military might, but a people that trust in the name of Jesus and a people that can, um, even as we engage in this political season, however, that we're just peculiar, we're different. Thank you for your courage, Jesus. We ask for that courage to be present in our lives. And we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, amen. So for the next two songs, uh, you can take your time. Uh, the band will be playing, stand up and worship as you feel fit. Also, if you're not partaking in the communion table, whether you're not sure about this Jesus fella or there's something going on, know that you are loved and that um, you also need to receive correction. <laughs> we all do. We all do. The table's open.